Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, I speak with Jack Devorkin on his upcoming honorary lecture, Modern Rock Physics Challenges and Solutions. Jack explains why some scientists have embraced unnecessary complexity, the best way to generate new scientific questions, the first step to embrace simplicity, and possible consequences if rock physics continues to trend towards complexity. Jack Devorkin is the program leader of the Rock Science Program at the College of Petroleum Engineering and Geosciences at King Fod University of Petroleum and Minerals. Jack is an SEG honorary member and has published more than 170 technical papers, five books, and nine U.S. patents. This episode is brought to you by TGS. TGS offers a wide range of energy data and insights to meet the industry where it's at and where it's headed. TGS provides scientific data and intelligence to companies active in the energy sector. In addition to a global, extensive and diverse energy data library, TGS offers specialized services such as advanced processing and analytics alongside cloud-based data applications and solutions. Visit seg.org slash podcast for Jack's full biography and the link to register for his lecture. Now for our conversation. So Jack, your upcoming honorary lecture, it's called Modern Rock Physics, Challenges and Solutions. However, in many ways, this lecture is about embracing the simplicity and a basic understanding of rocks. What made you reconsider the basics when creating this lecture? Before I answer your question, Andrew, let me make a disclaimer that all opinions voiced here are strictly personal, and they do not reflect those of the of my current employer, King Fog University of Petroleum and Minerals, or those of SAG. Now, back to answering your question. Acknowledging and embracing the basics in any field of knowledge is a challenge and often leads to a solution. Making things complicated may block progress, while resorting to simplicity often yields an elegant solution. The historic examples, consider, for example, Kepler's celestial mechanics. Uh, by using a plethora of uh, planetary motion observations made earlier by Tycho Brahe and later himself, he introduced three empirical laws. Yet he did not or could not define or constrain the underlying physical processes governing planetary motion. Unless Isaac Newton had not discovered the basic laws of mechanics and gravity, explaining the same observations and generalizing them, clearly any further progress in this matter would have been blocked simply due to the purely empirical nature of uh, Kepler's quantitative rules. Another example is from the realm of politics. It is always useful to simply ask, qui bono, who gains? Perhaps if this question were to be asked, many of the peddlers of the modeled man-inflicted global warming, now called climate change, would have been simply unmasked. The same stands for covering our land with solar panels and windmills. The same stands for forcing electric cars upon us. Who benefits from relying on batteries that are much more harmful to the environment than fossil fuels? 
there's a simple and basic answer to that. Arriving at simplicity and elegance in science is difficult. In 1750, Benjamin Franklin composed a letter describing his experiments involving electricity and sent it to a member of the Royal Society in London. In this letter, he said, I have already made this paper too long, for which I must crave pardon, not having now time to make it shorter. Nowadays, this is why most file and rank scientists write new papers by complicating existing theories. They often conduct experiments that are more and more complicated and without any consideration of how such developments might contribute to our understanding of nature or to solving a practical engineering problem. This approach is considerably easier than spending time thinking about a physical phenomenon, formulating an as yet unasked question, and then succinctly answering the question thus posed. This kind of leads nicely into this next question. You know, what what issues do you see start to arise when scientists make something like rock physics specifically more complex? Theoretical model can be made as complex as the author wishes. To do so is relatively easy for someone in command of graduate math. To make a model simple and to the point is much more difficult. There are a couple of quotes pertaining to the latter. All models are wrong, but some are useful. And everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Back to answering your question, Andrew. The first issue with uh, complex models is whether the input parameters of such models are measurable at all, either in the lab or in the field. In many papers I have read, a complex theory is derived, and then a problem is sought to apply the theory. In true science, a problem or phenomenon needs to be identified first, and then a solution as simple as possible derived to explain the phenomenon, and by so doing, generalize the theoretical explanation. The second issue is pedagogical. The complexity promulgated by established scientists provides counterproductive examples to emerging scholars by encouraging them to enhance their careers by simply tweaking an existing theoretical solution into something with additional parameters. Let us remember the nature, and especially that of natural sediments, is infinitely complex. And there's absolutely no way of exhaustively mimicking it using mathematics. A saline situation needs to be distilled from this complexity with a resulting phenomenon that can be mathematically described. This is the art of science that is being buried in the current culture under an avalanche of nonsensical publication which are sadly accepted by some SAT journals. You know, speaking of this complexity that you see arising within rock physics, you know, what questions did you start to ask yourself that helped you start to see new opportunities to address these challenges within rock physics? Well, 
what I've trained myself to do since uh, I was a grad student, and actually my advisor back then helped me a lot with that. I observe and then look beyond these observations. For example, the elastic properties of the so-called stiff rocks hardly react to the differences in the pore fluid because the rocks are stiff already. The measurable elastic moduli only weakly differ if the same rock contains brine or oil or gas. These results would seem to conclude a dead end by indicating that no elastic fluid indicators exist in such sediments. However, a solution emerges once you look beyond the canonical fluid substitution approach. You need to ask yourself why some of such rocks contain oil. Once this question is asked, you resort to data and discover that in the same stratigraphic interval, high porosity rocks are oil saturated, while the low porosity rocks are filled with brine. Now you have a solution. In this situation, the porosity is the pore fluid indicator, which translates into the elastic impedance cutoff to discriminate all from brine. Next, of course, you need to find a reason for this effect. And by so doing, generalize and understand where it is applicable and where it is not. First, you need to find a challenge. Then, second, you need to find a solution, not the other way around. Train yourself to see a system in the maddening complexity of the natural world. It is important not to be limited or controlled by rules or traditions. Of course, there are always new opportunities if you use the so-called scientific curiosity approach. Just do it because you can. For example, laboratory experiments have been done separately measuring the elastic properties of natural sand and artificial glass beads. Let's now mix them and find out the as yet unknown properties of this conglomerate. Perhaps we will be surprised. Again, it is important not to be limited or controlled by rules or tradition. What benefits did you see in your own work when you started looking and analyzing legacy data? It turns out that rocks separated by thousands of miles and millions of years of deposition may behave in a similar way. Some time ago, I found this initially unexpected congruency by looking at legacy wireline data from the North Sea and the Gulf of Mexico. The velocity-porosity behavior of relatively young and high-porosity North Sea sediments was continued by the Gulf rocks into the low-porosity domain. Of course, in the hindsight, this could be expected as there are only a few forces of nature that form and change the rock. This discovery carries a certain predictive power. By looking at well-studied legacy data, laboratory and or wireline, one may find, for example, that the velocity-porosity mineralogy behaviors of sediments offshore West Africa are remarkably like those in the North Sea. This finding provides additional quality controls for newly acquired data, plus 
it augments seismic interpretation. Exploring legacy data may prove to be especially useful in analyzing poor quality wireline and even seismic data. Once you find a reasonably robust legacy analog with the accompanying mathematical model, such data can then be corrected and data implications can be more easily understood. Well, diving a little more in depth on, on that particular issue there, what insights did you gain by using this particular question approach of looking at wireline data, these properties at digital rock physics data acquisition? It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And uh, diving into digital rock physics actually opened up many questions that we never asked before. For example, a very disturbing question arose when once we learned how to reliably image rock fragments in three dimensions using CT scan or FIBSM, and then reliably compute the physical properties of those images, including porosity, permeability, and electrical conductivity, we thought we were on the top of the world then. But one of our potential industrial clients requested a blind test, providing us with a core plug of known porosity and permeability. We chipped off a very small millimeter-sized fragment of this inch-sized plug, imaged it, and computed its porosity and permeability. This is necessarily the size of a rock fragment that can be imaged in 3D because we need to see the pore space, which is quite small. But even such basic property as the porosity that we computed did not match that measured on the host plug. Well, we thought our digital technology is great, but useless. The next question was, of course, why did these two porosity values obtained from the same piece of rock not match? The revelation that answered this question was, of course, because natural rock is heterogeneous at all spatial scales. How can we expect the porosity measured on a millimeter-sized fragment to be the same as that on an inch-sized fragment? In other words, speaking mathematically, the physical property of rock is not stationary in space. This was a real-world problem that had to be solved as simply as possible. The following question was, what is stationary in space? By using simple and available mathematical tools, we discovered that although a datum is not stationary in space, a transform or a relation between two or more properties, such as between porosity and permeability, or electrical conductivity and porosity, may be stationary in space. Once we arrived at this answer, we found a way of producing such uh, transforms from very small rock fragments and applying them at uh, much coarser scales. This case exemplifies a classic loop in real science. Observe, get surprised, ask why, explain why, mathematically generalize the explanation, and most importantly, find exceptions.
only after this work was concluded, it dawned on me that we have never asked this question when using laboratory data, inch scale, or wireline data, foot scale, in seismic interpretation, 100 feet scale. The solution to this problem came from digital rock physics. Although physical properties are not stationary in space, relations between such properties often are. Well, that's a, a pretty major insight there. And going back again, looking at the description for this upcoming honorary lecture, you're all about creating new questions like here is arguably the most difficult part of science is something that you say. Do you have any tips for scientists on, on how to generate these new questions? Asking new questions, it is the art of science. It is the art. As in any branch of human enterprise, Technicians are many, and artists are few. My recommendation is to observe nature, get amazed, and ask why. This may not necessarily only occur by analyzing physical data. This may also occur by thinking about phenomena and, once again, asking why. Try not to fall in with a crowd. Do not fear to be different. For example, you do not have to use machine learning because everyone does it now. Machine learning is only a tool. Find a problem and then select a tool. This path in science is difficult, but satisfaction is guaranteed. What, what do you think might be a few consequences for rock physics if it does continue to trend towards further complexity? Well, the major one is that it simply ceases being relevant. Another major one is that it models the field and blocks the way for fresh and simple ideas. Adherents of irrelevant complexity are keen on defending their turf, and hence rarely acknowledge elegance and simplicity. A good historic example is Gassman's fluid substitution solution. The simple and elegant solution was buried in the earlier theory. But in Gaston's publication in 1951, it came as a revelation and is being used practically by all geophysicists now. What do you see as the first step for the scientists to start embracing this simplicity you're talking about? First of all, don't go with a crowd. It's difficult, but don't go with a crowd. Challenge inconsistencies between theory and observation find a new or old problem and provide a new solution. Once you have a solution, ask yourself whether it can be simplified. Question authority, scientific and political. This is a difficult art to teach in class. I usually teach my students personally and by example. Check in with yourself. Why did you become a scientist in the first place? This is sweaty labor. Stay fresh, stay full of energy and enthusiasm. All this understanding, make sure you know your math and physics. Read other people's papers. You may find that, that whatever they offer can be done more simply and elegantly. You know, lastly here, you know, our time is about up, but you mentioned your students there. And one thing that I like to ask at the end of most of these interviews is one piece of advice that you would offer a student. And I feel like 
quite a bit of this was, uh, you know, helpful wisdom for your students or even people in the field for a long time. But what really, maybe that you haven't mentioned yet, do you think is a, a really key way for someone who wants to be a meaningful geophysicist in this field to contribute something important? What advice would you give them if that's the path they, they are wanting to take in this field? Well, our <laughs> petroleum sciences on that tack now. It's very difficult because the political climate is such that we're trying to switch, we're forced to switch to beyond petroleum or net zero, whatever that's supposed to mean. However, our job is to supply society with reliable and cheap fuel. We need to focus on what needs to be done to make the US and the West energy independent once again and easy oil and gas, they are gone. So careful science and simple science can help us discover new oil and gas deposits and then safely extract it such that the environment is protected and we still can use fossil fuels that are very important to all of us. Well, thank you for this conversation, Jack. I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be looking forward to this talk in, in the coming months. And thank you for uh, putting together such uh, helpful responses to these questions today. Sure, Andrew. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. To receive the latest episodes first, follow Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bakamjan, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.